Uh, We're going to be finishing the book of Judges this morning. Uh, Some of you are here visiting for Thanksgiving. I need to warn you, this has absolutely nothing to do with Thanksgiving, other than the fact that the rest of the staff are giving thanks that I'm the one that had to teach this passage. (laughs) David said last week that this is a very difficult passage to teach, uh, and it is, but not because it's that hard to understand or to explain. It's difficult because the things in it are difficult to look at, to focus on just the, the horrible stuff that's going on here. These, uh, this story was included here at the end of Judges in order to shock us. It was put here for its shock value. Uh, last th- Thursday, as I was leading prayer around our Thanksgiving dinner and thanking God for this wonderful country that he has given us, for, for all the, the freedoms and privileges that he's given us here, I couldn't help but uh, cringe inside about what's happening to our country. You know, we stand on the brink of war with all the devastation that that will bring. But we are already devastated. Uh, The corruption in our our, uh, institutions of government and finance is is pervasive. And and even worse, uh, in our immediate society, it's so full of, of pornography and violence that we're almost used to it. Like I said, this passage uh, was intended to shock us, but I'm not sure that we have any shock left. Several years ago, a woman went into a bar to buy a pack of cigarettes, and there in the crowded bar, several men grabbed her, put her on a pool table, and raped her, while others held her, and still others looked on in amusement. When word got out, there was outrage. Uh, People were upset for a little while, for several months. More recently, a young woman went jogging Central Park, and a uh, group of young boys chased her down, repeatedly raped her, and then smashed her head with a brick. Again, there was uh, an uproar for a while, a couple months. I want to read an article to you. This is a very hard thing to listen to. I don't do this casually. I I apologize in advance. This was just a back page article. This wasn't even front news. Uh, But let me read this to you. In a plea bargain termed better than no justice, a 22-year-old man drew a 10-year prison sentence for sexually abusing a 3-year-old girl and leaving her to die in an outhouse pit. Robert Therrett pleaded guilty Wednesday night to sexually assaulting a child and attempted first-degree murder during a special hearing before Littleton District Court Judge Charles Friedman. Third, entered the pleas in exchange for dismissal of kidnapping, child abuse, and crimes of violence charge. The charge arose from the August 22nd abduction of Lori Poland, age three, from the porch of her suburban Denver home. She was found alive three days later, in the pit of an outhouse in the mountains west of Denver. I think Lori's family is very disappointed that someone could snatch a three-year-old from in front of her house and do what he wants for his own gratification and then throw her in a pit to die, said lawyer John Lorston, who represents the parrots, Richard and Diane Pollard. People, this is happening in our country. 
And what about uh, the, the Charles Mansons, the, the Son of Sam, the Night Stalker, the Zebra Killers, Ted Bundy? You know, the list goes on and on. In fact, you could probably name several mass murders that I would even recognize their names. There's too many of them to keep track of. A hundred years ago, Jack the Ripper murdered five London prostitutes. He went down in history, infamy. I mean, the outrage lasted for a hundred years. Today, he would have been back page news. He would have been forgotten as soon as it was read. You know, we have become overwhelmed with shock. We have very little shock left. We are no longer shocked. 25% of all women in America were abused, sexually abused as children. It's impossible for a woman to walk in the streets of American cities or American towns or even country roads without fear of sexual violence and rape. Homosexuality has become a passionately defended right and freedom in our society. You know, how can we possibly be shocked anymore? God help us. This is where we have come. What's going on? Well, there's a mystery going on. There's an inexorable descent into corruption, to confusion, degeneration in our beloved land. Why is it happening? What's going on? Well, I think the, the last glimpse into the times of the judges gives us a clue to what's happening in our day. So turn with me to Judges 19. Judges 19. Right off the bat, we get our first and probably uh, largest, our best clue. The very first line, In those days, Israel had no king. Now, if you look at the very end of our story, which is chapter 21, verse 25, says, In those days, Israel had no king. He starts the story and he ends the story with that statement. It, that's the introduction and that's the conclusion. So I think it's safe to assume that that's what this story illustrates. What it's like when a people have no king. When people do what is right in their own eyes. That's what this story is all about. Last Sunday morning, David made the observation that, as he put it, man needs a master. Man is made to be mastered. If we aren't mastered by God, we will be mastered by sin. That's what the story was about last week. That's actually what the story is about this week. It's the same story, but a point that needs to be made again and again. We have a deep-seated, created hunger for a hero, for someone to follow, to emulate. That's why I think uh, Rambo types are so popular with some. Others have idolized a, a, a teacher, a mentor, a, a, an executive, a, a political figure, maybe a, an entertainment figure. And I think it's also why we uh, find ourselves so bitter and frustrated when, when a president lets us down or parents fail us because it, it strikes deep at that need, that hunger for a hero, for someone that we can really look up to, a king, someone we can follow. Let's get back to our text. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a comp 
concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem. After she had been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. We're told that uh, Levite had a concubine who left him, went home to her father. Now, concubines are fairly common in the Old Testament. Uh, What a concubine was was a female slave whose master decided he wanted her for a regular bed partner. Now, this was a uh, uh, legally and socially acceptable practice in those days. A concubine was not uh, on the same status, didn't have the same rights as, as a free wife, but she had some. She had more than, than an, an ordinary slave. She had more claim and more rights than an ordinary slave. Anyway, this uh, Levite, uh, his concubine had been unfaithful. They probably had fought. Maybe he even sent her away himself. But uh, she had gone back to live with her father. Four months later, he's cooled down and decides he wants her back. So he heads down to Bethlehem to get her back. His plan was to go talk to her and return with her immediately, to come back right away. He wasn't planning on staying at all. But when he gets there, his father-in-law is so delighted to see him, so excited about the fact that his daughter and her master uh, husband are, uh, are being reconciled that he asks him, you know, please stay three days. And so he agrees and he stays three days and they enjoy themselves. They have a good time. Fourth day, he gets up, starts getting ready to leave and the, the father-in-law says, oh, just stay for dinner. He says, okay, I'll stay for dinner. After dinner, the father-in-law says, oh, come on, it's getting late. You got to spend another night here. You don't want to travel this late at night. He says, okay. Spend another night. Next morning, he gets up, starts getting ready to go and the father-in-law comes and says, oh, come on, stay for dinner. That was a good tactic. It's a tactic I've thought about trying on my parents who are visiting and who always uh, visit too briefly in my, for my taste. I like to have them a long time. But anyway, he's trying to keep his son-in-law there. So he talks the guy into dinner again on the fifth day. And after dinner, he says, oh, it's late. Spend the night. And then the Levite says, no, I got to go. I mean, I've been here for five days. I didn't plan on staying. I've got to go. If I don't leave now, I will never leave. We're out of here. So he, he takes his, himself and his servant and his pseudo-wife, and they head off toward home. Well, they leave late in the afternoon, maybe four or five in the afternoon, and uh, they're heading north. They don't get far before the servant realizes they're going to have to find some place to stay for the night. They can't be out on the, on the roads at night with all the, the, the robbers and, and the wild animals. And so he suggests they stop in the next city. The next city was Jebus. Now, Jebus is, uh, was a Canaanite city. It's actually the city that about 300 years later, King David conquers and renames Jerusalem. But at this point, it's a Jebusite city, a Canaanite city. And the servant says, let's stop there. And the, the master says, uh, the Levite says, no, no, we're not going to stop in a Canaanite city. Those places are notoriously wicked and, and corrupt and dangerous. We're going to go on to an Israelite city, to our own people, where we'll be welcomed, where we can be sure of finding good people, hospitable people. So they travel the other two and a half hours up to Gibeah. At Gibeah, they uh, get there and they go into the, the city square and wait for somebody to take them home. But nobody does. We say, well, of course nobody does. How stupid of them to think somebody would. If, if somebody came to Boise, went down to the town square mall, sat in the middle of that mall, and waited for somebody to take them home, would say, 
How preposterous, how presumptuous. Of course nobody's going to take them home. But you've got to understand the difference between their culture and our culture at this point. In fact, this is the point at which we are supposed to feel the initial shock of how badly things had deteriorated, how, how far uh, these people had lost their, their, their moral and, and their civic obligations and, and their, their, their virtues. See, in the, in the Middle East, in the ancient Middle East, and actually to some degree in the modern Middle East, Hospitality is one of the most important and strongly socially reinforced virtues that there is. In in a society that evolved from uh, desert nomads, aiding somebody, assisting somebody who has no shelter and no water was a matter of survival. And only the the most insensitive, only the most socially boorish knave would fail to extend hospitality. In fact, they were expected to extend hospitality, even if they personally had to do without, to give it to someone else. In both the Old and the New Testament, we have this social priority reinforced for us by the Scripture. We're told to look out for the the sojourner, the traveler, the stranger among us. So the fact that these people were left just sitting in the square all alone was in and of itself a, a social outrage. Well... A little while later, this old man from Ephraim, coming out of the fields late, tired, comes through and he sees these people sitting there, and he's shocked. And he's amazed at, at, at this kind of, of behavior by the city. But he takes them home. He does his moral and civic responsibility, his duty. Takes them home, feeds them, takes care of their needs. And then we are told in verse 22, While they were enjoying themselves... Some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. These men from the city were smashing on the door, demanding to be let in, demanding that this old man turn the Levite over so they could rape him. About 800 years before this, a similar thing had happened to Lot, when he was living in Sodom, a Canaanite city, a couple of angelic messengers visited him. The men of the city saw him go in. They gathered around the house, were pounding on the door, and they demanded that Lot turn these two men over to them so that they could have homosexual sex with them. Well, that story is included in Genesis just to show us how decadent Canaanite culture and cities had become. Well, this story in Judges is not a Canaanite city. This is an Israelite city. I mean, we would say this is like an American city. This is happening in their own country. This is a shock. This is intended to shock us. Rampant homosexuality is an indication of the decay and the decadence of a society. Now, understand this real clearly. Homosexual sin is not more damnable than heterosexual immorality or any other enslaving sin. Sin is sin, and it is forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ as we confess that sin and repent from it. We, in in conservative evangelical circles, have been guilty of treating homosexual sin as somehow uniquely repulsive, somehow uniquely unforgivable. It is not. 
And we need to repent of that attitude and to, to, to reach out to those who are ensnared in this sin with the same care and compassion and love that we would anyone else with whom we had contact. And we need to learn to view our own sins as worse than theirs. But having said that, I still believe that the rise of, of homosexual practice and militancy is an indication of the disintegration of a society. It just demonstrates how far it has gone, how distorted, how confused it has become. And again, it's not the homosexual's fault that it is decaying, that it is disintegrating. It is all of our fault. We all share responsibility. But the fact that more and more people are being ensnared and entrapped in this sin and that it's becoming more and more socially acceptable is an indication of just how far we've gone. This mob of men who are uh, smashing at the door are literally referred to as the sons of Belial. Now, that's a fairly obscure reference. It's used whenever, or often when, when it's talking about totally, absolutely corrupt people. Uh, it is usually translated wicked men or, or worthless people. But what it probably means literally, Belial probably refers to one who has no yoke. People who have no yoke, no restraint. No social conscience, no relationship with God that would restrain them or offer any counterbalance to them doing exactly what they wanted, anything they felt like doing. Sometimes in Scripture, Belial is used in reference to Satan, who has thrown off the yoke of heaven and has shaken his fist in the face of God. These are his sons. These are the people who reflect his character, who are dominated, controlled by him, who are serving his agenda. You see, when, when, when humans seek independence from God, when they try to throw off His yoke, they don't find themselves free. They find themselves under a far more cruel, a far heavier yoke, the yoke of Belial. This helps us understand the mystery of godlessness or the mystery of lawlessness. Again, when, when people think they can find freedom by rejecting God and turning away from His truth, what they discover instead is that they find themselves more and more enslaved to their own selfishness, their own lusts. They find themselves more and more controlled and destroyed by the enemy, drawn deeper and deeper into lust and confusion. And we see this on a, on a large scale in, in the uh, atheistic governments of the world, the governments of the Soviet Union, uh, Czechoslovakia, China, Cambodia, when they tried to throw off the yoke of religion and tried to pursue their social programs, they began finding, themselves, finding it necessary to kill a few hundred people, well, then a few thousand, and eventually millions of their own people were killed. And we say, Man, can't you see it? Can't you see this is a, a descent into confusion and chaos and sin and destruction? Well, it's the same pathology that works in our own sins. It draws us deeper and deeper in. Uh, uh, Man chooses to harbor resentment and bitterness toward his wife rather than listening to what God has to say in Scripture and, and, and accepting the help that He offers to truly love his wife. He tries to throw off the yoke. He doesn't have to do that. 
He doesn't have to respond. And he finds himself attracted to other women and maybe sexually involved with another woman. Finds himself growing distant from his children and, and, and then finding himself careless of the effect that he's having on those children whom he once loved. Begins to view family and friends as, as, as obstacles, impediments to him finding his freedom, finding the, uh, the, 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 the fulfillment of his needs, his desires. And he sacrifices absolutely everything he has ever valued in that never-ending lust for freedom, to throw off the yoke. But instead of being yokeless, he finds himself under a far heavier yoke of sin, confusion, loneliness, and despair. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is impossible to be yokeless. In fact, there's no virtue in in the quest for it. There's no value in it. Jesus offers his yoke. Let's get back to our story. Uh, This mob of the sons of Belial are smashing at the door, trying to break in. Everyone inside is absolutely terrified. They are fearing for their lives. But their terror is really no excuse for what they do next. Let me read verses 23 through 25. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter. And his concubine, I will bring them out to you, and you can use them and do whatever you wish. But to this man, do not do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine, sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. Terrified of this mob, fearing for his own life, this spineless Levite threw his own wife out the door to save his own skin. You will see over and over, there is no righteousness on any side of this whole sordid affair. Well, the next morning, this Levite cautiously opens the door. There's his wife laying there, holding on to the threshold. He curtly and callously tells her to get up, but she doesn't respond because she's crawled there to die. When he realizes she's dead, he puts her on his donkey and takes her home. When he gets home, he does something that again sounds rather strange to us. He cuts her body into 12 pieces, and he sends those 12 pieces of his wife's body to the different tribes of Israel. Now, this is is terribly macabre, but it really isn't as culturally unusual as it might sound. Apparently, the way that they would call the tribes together in those days is they would take an oxen and they would cut the oxen into 12 pieces and send the pieces out to the 12 tribes. That's the way Saul called the armies of Israel, mustered the armies of Israel to face the Ammonites. The message kind of went, if you don't show up, this is what we're going to do to your oxen. Well, in this instance, the unusual thing is they used a human body. And the shock effect worked. 
the people of Israel, the armies of Israel showed up. 400,000 soldiers showed up and they were angry. They were incensed. They wanted to correct this outrage. They were ready to punish whoever had done this thing. The leaders of uh, Israel, I think, began to handle it correctly. They first found this Levite, made sure they had the story absolutely straight. Then they went to the tribe of Benjamin and they said, give us the perpetrators so we can punish them. But the Benjamites took it as a racial slur. They said, well, you don't like Benjamites. And they acted defensively of their kinsmen. And it just shows how far they had gone. They were not outraged by what had happened. They weren't themselves upset. They saw it as no big deal. They said, what's the big deal? You guys just don't like Benjamites. That's all. Read an article by a clear-thinking courageous black journalist recently who was um, remarking on the Marion Barry case. Marion Barry was the mayor of Washington, D.C., who was videotaped smoking crack cocaine. And this uh, journalist was pointing out exactly what we're seeing here. He was saying that that minority of leaders who are claiming racism in this situation are just showing how comfortable they have become with corruption in government and drug abuse. And he was, he was dismayed at what this said about the decay of moral values in our society. But anyway, the Benjamites all came together to defend the men of Gibeah. There were about 26,700 Benjamites facing the 400,000 of the rest of Israel. War was inevitable. So the leaders of Israel went before God and inquired from him, God, who should go first to thrash these Benjamites? See, they didn't come before God saying, God, what should we do? How should we approach this? They didn't come before God saddened and broken because of their own sinfulness and repentance saying, God, we too have sinned. They didn't come before God in, in fearful dependence saying, God, this horrible thing is going to happen to our nation. Please guide us. Give us wisdom. Now they came full of self-sufficiency and self-righteous fervor. God, we're going to go take care of this for you. Who gets the privilege of going in there to smash these people first? That's what they were asking God. You see, I think the fact is that the rest of Israel was right. But they weren't righteous. This outrage did have to be addressed. And because the, the, the people of Benjamin would not turn the perpetrators over, war was inevitable. It was unavoidable. All that is right. But that doesn't mean that the men of Israel were, were any less decadent, any less morally corrupt than their southern brethren. They just thought since they were in the right, they could march into this without facing their own sins, without facing the fact that it was their own practice of doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes that had drawn the entire nation into this moral morass and confusion. It's so often those who are guilty, who are the most aggressive and ambitious in punishing those who are caught in the wrong. And it's often our self-righteous facade that makes, you know, intended to cover up 
our corrupt hearts that makes religious people so often so vicious in prosecuting right. And we'll see a little later that the ire of the guilty is almost always excessive, almost always causes overreaction. It's necessary to deal with evil. It is good to seek righteousness. But when we do it with violent pride and self-righteousness, ignoring our own sins rather than facing our sins and repenting of them and coming to God in dependence, desperately saying, God, we too have sinned, but we have to face into this problem. Now give us wisdom, give us temperance to handle it in a way that is constructive and healthy and right and loving and good. If we don't do that, the result is always disastrous. This is true in our national affairs as we seek right in the Middle East. You see, I am convinced the United States is in the right. It is right. But are we righteous? Do we not also need a national repentance to face our own sins and come before God looking for wisdom, looking for His grace? That's true in in, in our church affairs as we seek to draw people who've been ensnared in sin or error, draw them back in in a loving, gentle, kind way, rather than standing up on the fact that we are in the right and that they are sinners and they are wrong. Or in our family lives, standing on the right, on the rightness of our position as opposed to our teenage child or our spouse, rather than with broken hearts, facing our own sins, our own weaknesses, and and coming to God for wisdom and grace, and then gently but firmly pursuing that which is healthy, that which is right, that which is loving. You see, it's entirely possible for us to be right and still be entirely unrighteous. The Israelites come back to God and they ask, again, they ask, uh, who has the privilege of first going in there and thrashing these Benjamites? So God says, Judah. And Judah heads out in the lead, and the Benjamites slaughter 22,000 of them. Whoa. That wasn't supposed to happen. After all, isn't God on Israel's side? Aren't they in the right? You see, in war, as in any conflict, no matter how personal, God's agenda isn't necessarily our agenda. God's plan is to bring about righteousness on both sides and to bring both sides into dependence on Him. War is always God's judgment on both sides of the conflict. There is loss of life. There is destruction on both sides. And God's plan is to use that to bring us to dependence on Him, to turn to Him for grace and wisdom and righteousness. If we go to war with Iraq, I have no question that we will be in the right. But I do have some questions about how things will turn out. If we go to war with Iraq, I think we as the the people who know the secrets of God are going to have to view that as God's call to us to personally turn from our sins and to turn in desperate dependence on Him. 
and to thereby lead the nation in turning back to God when we find ourselves in conflict uh, in our personal lives, in, in, at, at work or in the family. Rather than viewing that conflict as an irritation, as an as a unnecessary impediment to our own satisfaction and peace, we should realize that what God is doing is offering an opportunity for us to turn to Him in dependence, looking for His wisdom, His grace to handle the situation in a healthy, loving, constructive, righteous manner. That's His plan for us, even when we are the ones that are in the right. We must turn to Him for wisdom and temperance. Well, like I said, the Israelites come back to God after this defeat, and they're shaken. They're weeping. And they say, God, should we even do this again? Should we even go back? They're afraid. God says, sure, go back. And they go back, and another 18,000 are killed. That's 40,000 in two days. They come back this time. They're not just hurting. They're broken. And they're ready to face their own sins, their own need. They, they begin to fast and to, to, to offer sacrifice for their sins and to offer sacrifices of consecration to give themselves to God, to say, God, we're yours. We, we, we're tired of fighting you and of being so presumptuous. We realize how desperately we need you. And they gave themselves to, to God. And at that point, God said, okay, go back out one more time. I'll give them into your hands. And they went back out. And they set an ambush for the Benjamites. They went back to the city and attacked the city. The Benjamites came out to chase them. They pretended to be losing, ran away. As they pulled the the soldiers away from the town, another force of 10,000 soldiers went into the city, burned the city. When the Benjamites saw the smoke behind them, they got confused and scared, and the Israelites wiped them out. Killed all but 600 of them. And 600 of them escaped into the wilderness by the rock of Ramon. Then what the armies of Israel did after that was another horrible thing. They went through all of the, of the region of Benjamin and they slaughtered all the women and the children and the livestock. In verse 48 of chapter 20 it says Then the men of Israel went back to Benjamin put all the towns to the sword including animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across they set on fire. After that glut of violence and revenge they felt bad. They knew they had been excessive. They knew they had, had gone too far. Only 600 Benjamites were still alive. The rest had all been wiped out. And, and worse than that, they had already taken a vow that none of them would give their daughters to marry any Benjamite. They had already made a vow before God and they couldn't break it. So these 600 men weren't going to have any wives. And so an entire tribe was going to become extinct and they felt horrible. Well, that was a noble sentiment, a noble emotion, but what they did about that just shows how lost and confused these guys were. First, they started asking around. They said, is there anybody that didn't show up to the muster? Anybody who didn't send troops when they were asked? And they discovered there was nobody there from Jabesh Gilead, a place, a region way in the east. They said, aha, we can kill two birds with one stone here. We can go punish those people, and we can find wives for the Benjamites. So they sent a force up there, and that force went up and slaughtered all the men, all the women, all the male children, and kept only the young girls who had never been married. 
brought 400 of them back. There must have been a lot that they killed if they had 400 young girls that they took out of these families. Well, they brought these young girls who had just seen their mothers and fathers and brothers slaughtered, and they handed them over like cattle to the Benjamites for wives. Well, that took care of 400. What about the other 200? Well, they came up with another great scheme. They said, every year there's a dance at Shiloh. All of the young virgins, all of the young girls come to that dance. And they gave these 200 Benjamites permission to sneak into the dance and to kidnap 200 young girls. This way, nobody gave their children or their daughters to Benjamin. The Benjamites took it, but everybody's happy. Except for 200 young girls and their families. In verse 23 of, of chapter 21. So that was what the Benjamites did. While the girls were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to, to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. And that ends the uh, sordid, repugnant affair. It also ends the book of Judges. The next line brings us back to our theme. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This story was intended to shock us. This story was intended to come right out of the page and slap us in the face to show us how bad things could become when there is no king, when everyone throws off the yoke and does what is right in their own eyes. But to the modern American sensibility, it wasn't all that shocking. I mean, we see it on television every day, in the movies. This is back page news. Business as usual. Now, God help us. What's going on? Why is this happening? You know, the simple message is that we have no king, and everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. Now, we don't need a political king. We don't need a better president. We don't need a better Congress. We need a real king, someone we can die for, someone we can live for. I don't know if you've ever read any of the stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Tables. I love those stories. There you see the honor and the respect given. You see men who are willing to give up anything they ever had, give up their very lives out of their love for the honor of their king, to please their king. And we long for, we hunger for someone we can love like that, that we can love so passionately, so so unrestrained, so completely. We long for somebody whose character is such that we can trust them implicitly and without question. Patriotism is a reflection of this deep desire, this deep longing and need to have someone, something that we can live and die for. Sometimes ideologies catch us in this way. Other times, occasionally, there's a person who so grabs our affection. But countries and ideologies and people always fail us. We need a real king, one who is worthy to submit to, one who can gently master us. In our day, in our culture, we have despaired of ever finding anything worth living for anything worth dying for. And so we have uh, cynically and sadly come to the conclusion 
that the self is the only thing worth living for. But we know better. We know we're not up to it. We, uh, we know we don't deserve even our own worship. When we try to master ourselves, we discover, we find ourselves mastered by selfishness, by lusts, desires. When, when we try to throw off the yoke of religion and morality, we just find ourselves with a far heavier yoke of sin and the isolation that it produces. And our society merely reflects what's going on in our lives, just as the society did in the days of the judges. God, help us. We are getting pulled deeper and deeper into the morass. Fortunately, God has helped us. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Here is a king worth dying for. Here is a king that can be trusted. Here is a king worth living for who will lead us out of the morass, who will lead us into righteousness and freedom and peace. Here's the king who said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 6, we are told, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and ignore the other. Today you need to decide whom you will follow. Even those of you who already acknowledge Jesus as Lord, decide whom you will obey, whom you will submit to. There's only one who deserves it, only one who has earned it, only one who is up the job. The only hope for us as a society, the only hope for you as an individual is that you follow King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do again just acknowledge that we try to throw off the yoke. We try to be masters of our own lives. But we also acknowledge what that does to us where that leaves us the confusion and chaos and corruption. We acknowledge what we have done in our society, how each of our sins have added to the confusion, added to the destruction, that uh, we cannot point the finger out there, that we must accept our own responsibility as your children for where we are going. Lord, we want to to follow you. We want to love you so entirely, so unreservedly, so passionately. Lord, we want you to be our king, to lead us, lead us into wisdom, we lead us into health and into love. Lord, be our king. We pray in your name. Amen.